Now let's talk about the organs themselves. So energy restriction for 10 to 14 hours or more results in depletion of liver glycogen stores, hydrolysis of triglycerides. In other words, now you're starting to break down fats. What do you break the triglycerides into? Free fatty acids in the adipocytes or the fat cells. Free fatty acids released into the circulation are transported into the liver cells where they produce ketone bodies, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Those of you who have studied keto diet any at all know exactly what this is. So again, you start making those cellular level changes. Those cellular level changes start creating a difference in what we're burning. We're now burning triglycerides or fats. Those then lead to things like beta-hydroxybutyrate. Burning beta-hydroxybutyrate, again, in activates transcription factors or the genetics for PPAR-alpha, as I said a few minutes ago, ATF4, other stress-related anti-inflammatory hormones. It takes us into a metabolism of autophagy and again down regulates an insulin like growth factor so again we're starting to get into mTOR autophagy and the um, the basics of fat adaptation now let's look at one other level this is more of the systems level you get periods of intermittent fasting sufficient to cause depletion of liver glycogen stores. They trigger that metabolic switch into fatty acids and ketones. Cells and organ systems adapt to this challenge by activating signaling pathways that bolster mitochondrial function or that bolster it. You get stress resistance, antioxidation defenses while upregulating autophagy to remove damaged molecules. During this period of uh, energy restriction, cells adopt a stress resistance mode through reduction in insulin signaling and overall protein. Exercise, what does that do? It enhances this process. On recovery from fasting, when you eat and sleep, glucose levels increase, ketone levels plummet, cells increase protein synthesis, and you get undergrowing growth and repair. Maintenance of intermittent fasting regimens like OMAD, one meal a day, or time-restricted eating, TRE, or IF, intermittent fasting, particularly combined with regular exercise results in many long-term metabolic adaptations. So there you go. That's fat adaptation. And for those of you who didn't make the connection, you get that even with intermittent fasting and clearly other forms of regular fasting. Now, let's go to today's article. It was in the New England Journal, April of this year. Some studies came out of China. Caloric restriction with or without time-restricted eating in weight loss. So they're just looking at weight loss. They did some brief look at metabolic parameters, but not nearly enough to make a strong statement. Here's what the authors did. They randomly assigned 139 patients with obesity to time-restricted eating, 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. with caloric restriction or daily calorie restriction alone. Well, first of all, those of us who look at this kind of thing would say, that's not much time restriction. That's an eight-hour eating window. You'll see some things that make you go, yeah, okay. For 12 months, the participants followed calorie restriction or caloric restriction diet, 1,500 to 1,800 calories per day for men and 12 to 1,500 for women. And you might also say, dang, that's not much calorie restriction. 
I would say that too. The primary outcome was change in baseline and body weight. Secondary outcomes included changes in waist circumference, BMI, and again, some very moderate or minimal metabolic bioindicators. 118 participants completed the 12-month follow-up. Mean weight loss for the time restriction group was 8 kilograms. So what are we talking about? Over 20 pounds. For the daily calorie restriction, it was 6 kilograms. So significantly less there were no significant differences in waist circumference, BMI, body fat, lean mass, blood pressure, and the metabolic risk factors that they looked at. This one was a randomized clinical trial. Here's one of the major concerns I have about that. They're extremely difficult. Randomized trial for diet. Why is that? Because in order to have a lasting impact, a diet cannot just be a diet. It has to be a permanent change in the way you eat. Food is a personal thing with a lot of habitual behavior, a lot of social behavior, and even addiction. We've talked about it multiple times, especially carb addictions. You don't just randomly assign permanent addictive behavior change. It all boils down to this. Hey, doc, what's the best diet? The one that works for you. Now, what do I recommend? You know, I even recommended Penn's potato diet. Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller. He lost 100 pounds in 84 days. You know, how could I possibly do that? I know I'm going to get hate comments. Why would you recommend a diet made up entirely of a carb? Here's what happened. And Penn was very clear about it. He said, you get sick of potatoes. Potato every day. It's sort of like Dr. Boz's fasting using sardines. Sardines and potatoes, the same thing. These mono diets, when you eat food that you just is not that good, you start saying, ah, you lose your food addictions when you restrict your what you eat to one thing like that. And for somebody like Penn, but isn't it poison that he's eating if he's probably pre-diabetic or even diabetic at that added 100 pounds? Well, I will tell you this, there is no question. You know, it's like statins. You're taking a poison to fix a problem. Same thing with Penn Gillette. He was taking a poison, the potatoes, to fix the bigger problem, which was his body fat issue. And at the end of the day, the body fat is the bigger risk. I would much have preferred Penn to lose his 100 pounds on a sardine diet, but that's not what he chose. Again, it gets back to, hey doc, what's the best diet? The one that works for you. I don't fuss much about vegan vegetarian, keto, carnivore, Whole30, paleo, even the potato diet. What I'm concerned about is this. The biggest dietary mistake is failure to know what you can safely eat. By the time we're 30 years old, half of us start risking damage to our tissues every time we eat carbs. I've covered this in the JAMA Network video, UCLA video. Both of the articles on these were really good, and they made the point, the UCLA video. So if you go back, I'll cover those briefly for a second. If you look at the CDC website, they'll say, by the time we're age 60, a third of us have prediabetes. That's wrong. It's a lot more than that. UC JAMA looked at the whole country, and basically what they showed was, it's not by the time we age into 60, it's by the time we're 30 years old. And it's not a third of us have insulin resistance, it's 50%. So again, it brings you another movie quote, Dirty Harry. 50% of us by the time we're age 30 have prediabetes. Are you feeling lucky? So that's by far the biggest dietary mistake, not knowing that you're poisoning yourself with one of the three macronutrients 
because you haven't had your appropriate testing. There are other poorly recognized things too, like gluten sensitivity, celiac disease, but insulin resistance is Jack the Ripper. It's killing and maiming more of us than anything else. And we know it's out there. We just want to deny it. We don't want it to look. We hide from the answer. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.